0: Sobriety is scary. That's why Untapped Keg explores different perspectives of sobriety and mental health, so that you know you are not alone. Hopefully, you can find something you can implement into your own life. Sobriety and mental health are topics that often are uncomfortable and complex. We do not shy away from any conversation. But you should know we try to be respectful. But there's always room to learn and grow. Everyone is welcome here as you are, and you will be respected. We are not medical professionals and do not give medical advice. Please seek medical care if you need it. Now, let's get to the show. Hey, you. Thanks for tapping into some Untapped K podcasts about sobriety and mental health, where we speak with people and go over ways of moving from surviving to thriving so that you can take something from this podcast, and implement it into your own life. I'm RJ Zimmerman, and today I'm very excited to be joined by a keynote speaker and performance coach, a former top 100 tennis player, and an executive CEO and sales team coach, uh, Jeff Salzenstein. How are
1: you doing today, Jeff? I'm doing great. Uh, I hope you're not offended, but I'm going to have to correct you on the pronunciation of my last name. Dang it. I've been doing so
0: good on it and I thought I should have ask asked, you. but all right. Salzenstein. 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 Yes. I'm from Wisconsin and I should have nailed it. And I didn't, I feel it's like okay. they're going to take my Wisconsin card away. I love it. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. Salzenstein. Perfect. Did I miss it again? No, you
1: got it. Sauls and okay. I was like, dang, rocked
0: it. it. <laughs> I really do appreciate that, um, man. My head is all over today, but I really appreciate you bringing that uh, up because it is a big deal to me to uh, pronounce people's names correctly and let them know that it is a big deal. Yes, please bring it up. Um, and I understand how frustrating it can get. So uh, I named my my well um ex wife and I named our oldest Anari, and a lot of people struggle with it, so it's like i I have a soft spot in my heart for it so all right <laughs> how are you doing
1: today Jeff? Fantastic when I played on the tour. Sometimes we would start matches at Salzenstein, and by the end, the umpire was calling me Salzenberg, Salzenberg, Salzen Steak <laughs> Sandwich. It was funny how my name would just morph, and so it's kind of the running joke, if if people can get my last name right. But I'm doing great today. Thank you.
0: <clears throat> ah, that's great to hear. And, um, you know, those umpires, I tell you what, they get, you know, they're the position <sighs> of authority, so... <laughs> They're going to have some fun. So, uh, Jeff, why don't you give us a little bit of a background on
1: your story? Sure. I, li- I like to start in the middle of the story. Uh, I'm going to take you to the U.S. Open in 1997. I'm 23 years old. I'm an upstart coming from Stanford University. I graduated the year before, and I'm thrust onto this big scene at the U.S. Open in pro tennis. It's a second round U.S. Open night match. It's in Arthur Ashe Stadium. There's 24,000 people in the stands. It's a packed house. Uh, Millions watching on TV. John McEnroe, the famous John McEnroe, who most people know, even if they don't know anything about tennis. Uh, known for his temper tantrums, he's announcing the match. And I'm playing world number two, Michael Chang. I'm up five games to four in the first set. I've got set point and I hit an incredible wide slice serve. I'm a lefty. That was my best serve. And and I come into the net. I hit a great backhand volley just out of Chang's reach. And I win the first set. The crowd absolutely erupts. I look over. I see these guys from Wall Street in their suits in the front row. They're pointing at me like, where the heck did this guy come from? because I'm killing the number two player in the world. As I'm backpedaling to the baseline, the TV cameras capture a a little smirk on my face. I like to tell people that smirk basically meant that the match was over. And the reason that the match was over is the dominant thought in my head was, thank God you didn't embarrass yourself tonight. I like to start with that story because... What it demonstrates is here I am, this elite athlete. I'm on the big stage. I'm beating the number two player in the world. I've got this incredible 130 mile an hour serve. I'm a great athlete. I can hit every shot in the book. And yet I have these limiting beliefs. I have these doubts. I have this belief system that I can't beat the number two player in the world. I just want to keep it close. I don't want to embarrass myself. And so as a mindset coach and a performance coach, I like to start with that story to show that I'm equal parts extraordinary with my talents. Like every one of us has a genius or a talent, but I'm also equal parts ordinary. We're all human. We're part of the human existence. We all have this imposter syndrome and these limiting beliefs. And um, yeah, I like to start there. I lost the next three sets, lost the match. Next day, I was signing with an agent. And three months later, in an off-season training session, I felt a sharp pain in the front of my ankle. And after that, I came back six months later, my first pro tennis match back. Uh, rehabbing the ankle. I felt a sharp pain in the back of my knee. So I had an ankle surgery and knee surgery before the age of 25. My body was completely falling apart. I'm going to stop there and we'll circle back to what happens next. But I want to go back to the beginning. I came out of the womb playing tennis. Uh, My parents played tennis. My father played college tennis. I had a racket in my hand that I was tugging around the court before I was potty trained. And, uh, I was, a, I was a superstar. I was winning trophies when I was eight, nine. So what do you do when you're really freaking good at something? You just, usually you keep doing it. And so, uh, became this tennis star at 12 years old. I was a national champion. Uh, life was amazing. Three years later, I was almost 16 years old. I was five foot four, 102 pounds. I was using a phone book to see over the steering wheel and. Uh, I was losing to all these players I used to beat when I was 12. And it was a really challenging time for me as a a teenager. And it could have gone one of two ways. It was a defining moment. Do I stop playing tennis and kind of give it up because I used to be good and now I'm not and go hang out with my buddies and maybe even start drinking or partying? Or do I double down? Well, I doubled down uh, and I got a lot better and I started growing and it took me to Stanford and i took i played for my dream school for my dream coach the greatest college tennis coach of all time dick gould he won 17 national titles uh he is the john wooden of college tennis and uh i had a transformation there i after my freshman year i had this terrible serve and instead of continuing to play pro tennis that summer in between my freshman and sophomore year i went home to denver and I had an accidental transformation where I added 20 miles an hour to my serve. And now I had this big serve weapon. I physically grew and I go back to Stanford. My coach's jaw dropped and, and he couldn't believe I had transformed my body and my serve. And all of a sudden, I was at the top of the Stanford lineup winning national championships. I was elected team captain and had this really remarkable Almost accidental career at, at Stanford, and that allowed me to play pro tennis. You know, the dream was never to play pro tennis. I came from Colorado; it's a ski state, not a tennis state. Um, and so, I tried my hand at pro tennis. And in that first year on the tour, I shot up the the world tennis rankings, which included playing that match with Chang. And then, ultimately, the injuries started to hit, and so I came to that crossroads when I was twenty five years old um, on what happens next when my body's falling apart and I'm feeling anxious and depressed and don't really know what's going to come, what's going to come about next in my career.
0: I really think that, uh, that mindset, right, where you're really looking at what am I going to do next? Where am I going now? Like that is Exactly what happens when you're contemplating your relationship with alcohol, right? Or even Mm -hmm. your relationship with anything that you're using to escape your life, Uh, whether it's gambling, whether it's porn, video games. There's so many things that we do work too. For so, how difficult was it for you to shift gears and find a new passion with your body breaking down and um, trying to figure out where you fit in into your life?
1: Sure. So, you know, I always look at these defining moments, the defining moment when I was 15, almost 16 years old and my ranking had dropped the defining moment when I went home to work on my serve instead of continuing to play pro tennis that summer and then transforming it. And then the, the defining moment at 25 years old when my body's breaking down and I'm having surgeries. And that was a time in my life that was really interesting around alcohol. And I know we're going to get to the, the deeper story around addiction shortly here. But um, I went on this period of about two years where I'd go three months where I'd go out to the bars with my friends and I'd party because I was hurt. And you know what do you do when you're hurt and you're not playing pro tennis? One of the things you can do is party. And I wouldn't say it was an alcohol problem. It was more of a distraction. And it was a way of knowing now, a way of just letting off steam and meeting girls and being young and dumb and full of you know what. Oh, and, yeah. so, and so uh, I would go like three months. And then after the three months, I'd be like, what am I doing? And then I'd go three months where I would hermitize. I would not hang out with anyone. I wouldn't drink. I was training, rehabbing like crazy. And then I'd get bored with that. And then I'd go back to that cycle again. And that went on for about a year and a half um, as I was rehabbing, trying to figure out my body. But during that time, I made a decision. I became obsessed with all things high performance, which I didn't know at the time at 24 years old. I didn't know that 25 years later, I'm 49 now as we're recording this podcast, I didn't know that I my life's work was gonna be based around that decision to become obsessed with performance. I went to my first yoga class. I started eating organic food and drinking green drinks before it was considered cool. Uh, I worked with the top experts in the fields of uh, nutrition, mindset, spirituality, injury prevention, biomechanics. I was a absolute sponge. And I took that information and I applied it to break the top 100 in the world for the first time at the age of 30. So I came back better and stronger because of my studies and my application. I made a lot of mistakes along the way. We don't have enough time to go into all those. But I had this really interesting career where I was playing better in my 30s than I was in my 20s. And I was really committed to the The process of performance. And so alcohol didn't really factor into my life after kind of those, that little binge period when I was down and out. But I studied a lot of stuff in the mindset world, emotional regulation, emotional intelligence, uh, belief systems. And it set the stage for when I was 33 years old, 34 years old, I'd been playing on the tour for 11 years. I was burned out. I was stressed out. I was. Really questioning my calling and my purpose. I'd been playing this tennis game for so long, but I wasn't getting the results I want. I was feeling lonely on the tour. And at that moment, uh, I was visiting my family in Florida. I have two families Colorado, Florida family, and my father, my stepmother, and my three siblings. And I remember walking into my brother's bedroom one morning or that morning. It was December 30th, 2007. And lying on the floor, sprawled out, passed out a white, foamy substance coming out of his mouth. My brother Eric was overtaken by a cocktail of drugs. And in that moment, my professional career ended. um in that moment, I decided this is i my calling is to be a coach and a mentor and to help others. And it happened to be in that moment, it was my brother. so uh, got him to the hospital and just became committed to his recovery. Now, of course, there was probably some enabling there, like, does he really want to do it or not? But um, I felt that he was 17 years old. I was 34. He needed a figure in his life to help him if he wanted to help. So we got in, into rehab and I abruptly quit pro tennis, uh, retired from the tour because of my brother, more than willing to do it. It was a brother's love kind of episode. And I moved back to Denver and I started coaching tennis. And I realized within the first month of coaching that I loved coaching more than I loved playing Michael Chang at the U.S. Open. There was a thrill that I got out of seeing other people get wins, other people succeed than for me just to win a tennis match. And so uh, that began began my career in coaching in tennis. And then I built an online Tennis uh, platform that's helped millions of people around the world. If you're a tennis player, you can go check out Tennis Evolution. We have a big following on YouTube. And I've been just helping people learn the fundamentals of the game. And so that really began my professional career in coaching. And then uh, the last six years, I've been working on... Working on uh, I've been a performance coach and a speaker the last year, really sharing my message with the world. And it's around performance, it's around decreasing stress. It's around improving your mental health. It's around tapping into your heart. And of course, my brother's story is a very powerful story that of course I know we're gonna be talking about.
0: So when you talk about tapping into your emotions, mm. um, you, you mentioned that you were, got into emotional intelligence and emotions when you were making your comeback to tennis how does that help you like with your decreasing of stress, like with clients? And then, uh, I want to, you know, how was it in learning about emotional intelligence and applying it Mm -hmm. to your yourself?
1: Sure. I, I would, I would, it's funny. Like when I think of my family, my Colorado family, so my mother, my stepfather and my three siblings here, uh, my mother always jokes that I'm Switzerland, that, Uh, I always stay neutral, that I have a very calm demeanor about me. So I think I've I've had that most of my life. I was the type of child that when I was a very very high achiever, perfectionist type, type A, had to really work on, I'm continuing to work on it now, uh, work on those qualities about me. But I was the type that I was always the best on all the teams, like the baseball teams and the soccer team, I just had this athletic gift. And then I had this internal drive to be the best, but when I would strike out or when I would lose a tennis match, I was the kid that was crying and moping and really emoting those kind of those sadness, uh, sadness, uh, emotions, not as much anger, but probably sadness. And um, I know that's a big part of my development, but, I also think in tennis, and this is a really interesting thing that I've really tapped into more recently about myself, which I believe helps me be a better coach because I'm focused on how can I become a better version of myself so I can coach at a higher level. In tennis, you have 30 seconds between points. And if you lose a point, you don't have time to emotionally lose your you know what. And I think I had a a really good skill at bouncing back quickly. You lose a point, you bounce back. You lose three points in a row. You don't let it slide. And whoops, lost my headphones there. And so when when you have trained your whole life to basically bounce back in 25 seconds after losing a point, or you lose a match and you have to come back the next day and play another one in the consolation round... I developed that resilience. I developed that bounce back. Now there's a trade-off. The trade-off is that you're not really taught to feel your emotions because you don't have time. Yeah. You don't have time to feel your emotions when you're in battle, when you're competing. And so I think that creates a dynamic for men and women who play in sport, especially where you don't deal with your emotions. You don't feel your feelings. And so... I think that's one thing that I've noticed about myself you talked about distractions. Um we all distract ourselves because we don't want to feel. We we are taught that it's uncomfortable to feel those bad those bad negative emotions, but really emotions are just energy in motion and they just move through our bodies if we allow it to and if we don't assign meaning to it. And I can clarify all of this in a bit if you'd like, but as it relates to my coaching, I've learned tools over the years Um, different breathing techniques, uh, different techniques, one technique in particular called tapping, where you actually tap acupressure points, and it calms the amygdala, which is the fear center of the brain. So, you know, besides talk therapy, like talking out your problems, Um, there are ways to connect your body and your mind and to get into your heart, whether it's through heart focused breathing, whether it's through tapping or other techniques. And what's really cool is that there are ways that we can all regulate ourselves, regulate our emotions, regulate our nervous system. And these tools are needed, as you know, in a post pandemic world where anxiety and depression is on the rise on a, in a social media world where everyone's looking at their screens all day and not getting out into nature, um, and then, of course, you know, with addiction challenges that people have, the good news again is that there are real tools to help people feel empowered to tap into their emotions that it's okay to, and to improve their mental health. And of course, I want to be a part of the solution to all of this with the the wealth of now- knowledge that I've developed as an athlete and as a coach the last twenty five plus years.
0: Yeah, and I appreciate you know you being honest with all of that, and that's something that I fall into where. Um, I played sports my whole life, but you know, just society and culture as well, pushing yourself to the side to help prop other people up and like being that neutral person where nothing phases you until it does. And then when it does, everybody freaks out. Right. Um, <laughs> that takes a little bit of getting, I don't, I don't know if I'll ever get used to that, but, uh, just realizing it, it goes a bit, a long way. Um, so as you're learning your emotions that are coming in and you're learning these new strategies, right? When was like that moment where it clicked, like this makes so much sense in helping me to not feel strung the entire time and mm-hmm. I can just, I can move into being. Uh, was there one moment for you or was it little by little?
1: Well, if I'm being completely honest, I don't know if there's, Well, first of all, there wasn't a moment for me. And if I were to sit here and tell you as this performance coach that has all this experience, if I were to tell you that I have this licked, then I'd be lying. So I don't think we ever get there. I think there are layers. I think it ebbs and flows. Um, What I can appreciate about the work that I've done is that I'm able to guide guide folks and obviously practice it myself but i'm able to guide folks and and clients and people um, that really when you look out in the world it's kind of a mess there's just so many different things and everyone has different opinions i feel like i'm able to distill it down into a couple of these really simple techniques and my framework um, is called the balcony blueprint and it's a it's around Taking yourself, you can take yourself to the basement or to the balcony with your thoughts, emotions, and habits. And when you start to make these small positive steps, small steps every day, whether it's in your physical, in the physical health rank realm with your body, the mental health realm with your mind, the emotional health with your heart, when you start to uh, add up these wins every day, things start to really move in a positive direction. I would say as it relates to me, mine has been a gradual approach because over time, even from a young age, because I wanted to be an elite athlete, it's almost like that forced me to try to look into all of those things. Now, other people don't do that. They're just natural at it and they just wake up, get out of bed and they win and then they go do whatever. But for me, I was just such a student of the game. So I want to learn all these aspects. And so the big moment was when my body was breaking down, I knew that I might never play tennis again. And I started learning all these performance cues and over time started implementing the breathing, the tapping, um, the way of life, it becomes a way of life. And for anyone that's listening to this podcast, if you're struggling or you're looking for answers, just know that there there is, there are strategies and there is a framework uh, that you can find. There are there are really great tools out there and you're not on an island and you're not alone and there is community out there and there is support out there. You do have to do some digging. You do have to do some work and, and try to find it, but it's out there. And that's exciting because I think it gets hidden amongst all the distraction when we get all the negative information through the news and social media every day. But for example, with social media, I specifically the algorithm, I only see like really positive stuff every day. I just always see the cool stuff, whether it's around relationships or training your body or nutrition. So social media is cool for me because I learn and you can set, you can even set up everything that you see every day in that way. So uh, a long-winded answer to wasn't one pivotal moment other than when I decided I needed to learn all these things to change. Mm -hmm. And I've, I've been open to that over the years. And, you know, even now, this is again, the biggest thing I have right now, I have a personal coach. I have a relationship coach and I have a business coach and I'm learning from all three of them. And I know that that really helps me stay, stay grounded and stay aware of what I'm working on, which is continuing to tap into my body, my emotions. These, this is where some of the the secret sauces is getting out of the head and into the body. And which is ironic around mental health because you immediately think of the mind. Yeah. In order to get better with your mental health, you actually have to get into your body.
0: Absolutely. That's something that I learned (laughs) the roundabout way too. Like I I was a high voltage line tech for almost 10 years. And uh, so that job being very physical helped me to be there. But really the past three years working on my mind, focusing on that, and then starting in, September, October, like focusing on getting my body to where my mind is, and how much that connection has been tied to the great things that are happening in my life. And my social media experience is very much similar to yours, where people tell me all the time that they go on and they get depressed by what they see. I'm like, I don't see that stuff. Like, uh, if I see somebody who's negative too many times in a row, I unfollow. I Nope. Not, not looking at that. I'm sorry. It's just, that's not important for me to see. And it doesn't help me at all. Mm -hmm. And that's another thing that we don't talk about that people can get lost in is your anger and people get addicted to being angry because it does feel cathartic and like, that's what you want. Right. Um, so as you're shifting and you're there for your brother, um, how did, how did his story go? And, you know, the, the power that's behind him.
1: Yeah. So I get, I get my brother to Colorado to come live with me and alcohol was his, um, I would say was his gateway. Right. So kind of the foundation was drinking and then layer the drugs on other drugs on top of that. I mean, we know alcohol is a drug, um, And so he gets out of rehab, he comes to Colorado and he lives with me for three months. I made mistakes around setting up boundaries or lack of boundaries and guidelines living with me. And I started noticing a change in behavior and I started picking up that things weren't kosher. And so turns out he started using again. And at that point he went back to Florida because he wasn't welcome at my home if he was going to be using and that began about a five year kind of life of destruction, drugs, drug dealing. Um, we weren't really in touch. He understood my boundary that if he was going to be using and, and destroying his life, I wasn't going to be involved. Took a pretty hard line on that, which we'll get into in a bit. But, uh, and that led him to committing, um, you know, two felonies and landed him in prison. And he was supposed to have a um, life in prison was kind of the if they threw the book at him and he was guilty life in prison. So they they did a plea deal with him uh, two four year terms that were created concurrent. So ultimately, he spent about four years in a maximum security prison in Tallahassee, Florida. I remember about halfway through his sentence, uh, he called me and he said, Jeff. I really want to change, but I have no idea how to do it. So I sent him a book. I sent him awaken the giant within by Tony Robbins. And he read the book cover to cover. He devoured it. And that gave him his value system, his, his understanding of how he could change. And he started systematically changing his body, mind, and heart. Uh, He started, he, he, He developed this superhuman strength in the prison yard with his body weight calisthenics. He started sleeping better, waking up early to clean the toilets, being of service, changing his mind and thought patterns, uh, mentoring other inmates. He even discovered a hidden talent for public speaking that he didn't know existed, uh, which was perfect for him in prison because his audience was fully captive. His (laughs) joke, not mine. (laughs) Um,
0: I listen, I'm a dad, obviously. So like, I, I enjoy a good dad joke.
1: Yeah. So (laughs) that's, that's his, I stole that from him. But, um, yeah. So he made this incredible transformation in prison and we were doing calls every week. I was coaching him from prison. He was in prison. I wasn't, but coaching him. And, um, when he got out, he started just killing it in life in a positive way, um, became a top server at high end restaurants then he moved into life coaching and then became business coaching and here was the the number one problem coming out of prison first of all he obviously had the the previous world of a, of addiction which you know how it started at a young age so his brain was i think you know molded at a young age um he was diagnosed with an ADD at a young age he was on ritalin then he started smoking weed at a young age led to other things drinking but what happened from there was or the biggest issue was when he got out of prison he started drinking right away and i said it's a bad idea man like don't go there like you just served 4 years in prison and you're making great strides don't go there and the answer was hey jeff i've done my time i've done my processing i've transformed i can have a couple drinks I'm sure you've never heard that one before I can just have a couple drinks. I'm good. I can, I can control it. I'm not that I'm not like the other people. No, nah, I don't, yeah. need, no, I don't need to go to meetings. I don't, none of that. So I said, listen, man, don't do it. Just don't go there. And, um, that was a a rub for both of us. I continued to help him because I did feel like he had a handle on it. Um, but as the career started to take off, he won a prestigious public speaking contest uh that uh won him a ted talk he got his own ted talk uh incredibly powerful story from prison to prosperity sharing wow. his powerful message about how he went from a life in prison to a life of purpose and i was right there with him i was at the speaking contest i got him into the contest cuz i knew a friend he won the entire thing I'm, I'm i'm smiling i'm cheering i'm hugging i'm his corner man man i am I am the coach. I'm in the, I'm like, what is it? Mickey from Rocky. I'm that guy. I'm in behind <laughs> the scenes. Like you go kid, you know? And I, yeah. and, and and I don't think probably my most, one of my most proud moments in life uh, wasn't any tournament match that I won. It was seeing him win that contest and just seeing how he transformed and his career took off. I mean, his business career was like this. Unfortunately. Um, As the more success came, the stress and pressure came and he started using, I think he started drinking more. I don't know all the details because I wasn't living with him, but he's good at hiding things. But And then he started um, using more drugs, uh, the hard stuff, and got hooked right away. And I watched this three-year ascent out of prison. And then I watched this three-year descent where, unfortunately, four months ago, Uh, He died from an accidental fentanyl overdose. And, you know, it's, you know, to lose a brother is, it hurts, man. Like, it hurts. And uh, I tried to help, you know, I tried to help in many different ways. I made some mistakes along the way as a brother. But, um, you know, it's a super sad story, but it's also a story that I feel proud to share of what he did in a short amount of time when most of his life was tragic, if you will. And then the last part was tragic. There was a, there was a time where he was, he was Eric. He was, he was living more fully in who he was and he was dealing with his demons and his trauma and he was doing the best he could like all of us. And he got a, a, a tougher tougher lot at this in life than than I did. You know, we used to joke together. I was the golden child and he was the black sheep. We used to joke or even seriously say, we're going to be on stages together sharing this powerful message about performance and health. And you're going to be the all-American from Stanford and you, and I'm going to be the drug dealer who is in the ghetto of Orlando being chased down by dogs and helicopters squads. You know, I'm like, I can't or, or being in solitary confinement in prison for 50 plus days. So Um, you know, really sad that he's gone, but I'm also committed to sharing his message going forward. And that's one reason I'm on this podcast today. Otherwise, you know, I wouldn't be right. So I'm in the, I'm starting to get into the arena around supporting people, whatever that looks like. Um, if, if Eric's story can encourage someone to, to change and to get better, um, then, then we've done our job.
0: Absolutely. And, uh, Thank you for sharing that. Um, I know it's difficult and thank you for, you know, the strength that you're showing being vulnerable like this. And I am truly, you know, sorry for your loss. And thank you what you said um, during that story and being there for support, like, and after the supports, whatever that looks like, like that is something that I'm learning is the most important words when you are there for somebody. Um, I think that a lot of people, when we talk about addiction and we talk about sobriety, it's well, let's get in there and fix it. Let's fix it. But a lot of the time, it's not about fixing. It's about it's about understanding that it's a process, and that process doesn't stop there are moments where it gets easier there are moments where it gets tougher but it's still the process right so sometimes it's going to be active support sometimes it's going to be passive support and the more that we actually look into things and understand about the mind and addiction and escaping and why we get into these patterns that are so self-destructive the more that we realize that um, there is not that magic bullet, there is not that magic pill. And what you've been saying this entire time about your mind, body, and spirit, your mind, body, and heart, like that is, that is the key. And it's not that you look at everything as unicorns and rainbows, because it's not that cynical. Oh, you get sober and everything's unicorns and rainbows. It's well, yeah, it is unicorns and rainbows but unicorns also have to shit so there's a lot of work you got to do in cleaning that up before it covers all the rainbows and you get stuck where you were before um what is so i'm what is something that you understand i would say now with going through that process with your brother, as far as um, having somebody so close to you and you have such a connection to his struggles um, that you could tell somebody who is also struggling with someone who um, they
1: really want to help um, in that. It's a great question. I'm going to give you the one thing. (laughs) I mean, there's probably more than one, but I'm going to give you the, the one thing. The one thing for me, and this is something I'm working on getting back to, I'm working on internally so that I can show up for other people, is this idea that I've been pretty self-sufficient. I've been a star tennis player, got to solve problems on your own on the court. You don't have time to to like feel your emotions at that time. I've never been on that other side where I've been in that addiction cycle. So it's very difficult for me to understand. And I imagine that my brother felt that for me, that like, you know, when he was using and in a dark place, it's like, Jeff just doesn't understand. Like he doesn't understand what I'm going through, right? And that's why it's also important to probably be around people that have gone through it and come out on the other side and get that support because I couldn't really empathize or like really understand right i couldn't even say i could say yeah that must suck but it was just very difficult for me to go there with him because i just don't really get it um so my support and help this is the part that i learned was it it was probably perceived and maybe partly true as being conditional like hey i'll only help you if you decide you wanna be clean. But if you're using, I don't really wanna have much to do with you. And that's pretty hard or sobering to say, honestly. Like the one regret I have is that we didn't speak for the last year. We had a big falling out. There was a big event that happened where he got very high. And I witnessed it and I was like, enough, I'm not going to be part of this. And I basically just cut it off. Now, obviously I could speak into, well, I put him in rehab. I paid all this money. He lived with me. I did about 400 other things for him. So people always highlight that like, "Oh my gosh, Jeff, you did as much as any brother could do. But I think the part that I missed that From this day forward, I will always have an awareness of and try to do for others, is I would have texted him once a month for the last year and I would have just said, I love you. That's it. Doesn't matter if you have addiction. Doesn't matter if you use or you don't use. I want you to know that I love you. And I imagine that deep in his soul, Eric knows that. He knows that I love him. But I'm sure with the addicted brain and what he was experiencing, especially at the end, was my brother, he's not there for me. He doesn't love me. He's not whatever, like the, the unhealthy part of him. So I, I don't think or know if it would have changed anything. But I think the one message is even when someone is suffering deeply in addiction and you can't understand it and you don't want to be a part of it, you still can reach out. And text or call that person once a month, once three months, once every, and just say I love you. I'm thinking of you. Unconditionally doesn't matter if you're using, and I don't even need to know. We don't need to talk about it. That's what I learned from this process, and you know I wish I could have a do over on that, um, but I can't. And you know I did the best I could. I thought that I was doing the best I could to have a hard boundary of what's acceptable and what's not. It was tough love. I gave him tough love. It probably wasn't perceived that way from him, but it was tough love. I just wish I would have softened a little bit with that with the check in text. Hey, I love you. Just thinking of you.
0: That's um that's extremely powerful. That's that is it. That is the one. Um you're absolutely right there. Uh, you know, the studies that have been coming out, especially the past ten years, about connection and how that brings people back, um, and as somebody who, you know, I went into alcohol to escape my mind, to escape my reality, to escape everything that was going on, thinking I wasn't good enough. But I gave up alcohol, and for years I still went into that recess of my mind. And nobody could understand. Nobody understands I'm I'm alone. There's that's it. And I I didn't realize that I was everything at life was framed around I am a piece of crap. I hate myself. I there is nobody worse in this world than me hmm. until a little bit over a year ago, I found that. Because of my kids, because I almost put them into that hole of hating myself and then thinking that there was something wrong with them because they love me. That's it. And realizing that and the internal dialogue that you can go through to change things into not even I love myself. I'm not there yet. I don't know if I will get there, possibly, but I can at least get to I'm okay. And that's it, that's all I need instead of looking at everything in life as I hate myself, I can't do it. I'm such a piece of crap. Even though I'm successful in everybody else's eyes, even though everybody sees this amazing person, never in my life did I actually feel like I was okay until recently. And it is a hard mountain to climb. But hearing that, that that is... That is something that you can do. And you have to set those boundaries for yourself too, because you could easily be sucked down into the vortex and pulled into somebody's hole and void that they're trying to fill and run away from. And, but it, that's the thing about feelings. And that's the thing that we're learning is they're valid. All of it, every single one of it. And if you don't take care of yourself, you couldn't have been there for somebody else, for other people. So it's to learn that lesson and to share it is so incredibly just phenomenal. And the way that you distilled that down, it can't be said any, any, any better. Like I, as soon as you said that the text message, I love like I had tears in my eyes because it was like, mm-hmm. you get it, you get it. And that yeah. I want to thank you for that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The feeling I'm going to go with a feeling now cause I'm getting emotional. The, the feeling that thank you for that. The feeling that comes up is there's like a there is a bit of a regret and uh, some grief and some sadness. You know, I don't know if you've studied any Enneagram stuff before, but there's this concept around the Enneagram and I'm a number three. And number three is the achiever. Number three just presses on. And so the way I understand myself is that I have tried to achieve myself out of my not feeling or not expressing certain things at certain times and so being a 3 can be challenging because you're looking around at the world and you're like come on get off your butt and do something like let's take action let's be an achiever so it's kind of interesting that I'm a coach cuz coaches usually help people take action right um but i just when i take the time to feel into the experience of my brother and not texting him You know, I realize I got most of it right with him, but not all of it, that one piece. And like I said, I want to be quick to, you know, there's survivor's guilt, right? I don't think I experienced the survivor's guilt because I really trust that everyone's on their own journey. And I believe he's at peace now. He doesn't have to suffer anymore in this life, but there is that piece of me that's like, man, I wonder if it would have made a difference somehow if I would have just kept checking in with him. And so going forward, I will commit to doing that with anyone I come across that I'm aware of that has this issue. And what I'm also committed to, which I alluded to earlier is sharing his message. You know, I'm here right now, because someone's going to listen to this podcast, and hopefully have hope, you know, hope and belief they can change, they can be inspired by my story, or my brother's story, or our story. And that they can realize that if they do remove the alcohol from their lives and they get around the right people and they create a different environment and they change their thinking and they get stronger physically and they find that strong spiritual practice and they breathe into their heart they do all the things they feel all the things they can get there and there's people like us like you and I that are out there sharing this message that can that can support people when they're feeling alone and they feel like crap. So, um, yeah, that's my message. I want to share. I'm now, now when I get on stages, I'm sharing the story and I'm talking to companies and I'm talking to individuals and leaders. And I'm saying, listen, Eric may be the extreme version, the addiction, the alcohol, the, the, what he struggled with, but everyone is struggling with stress. Everyone is struggling with overwhelm, anxiety, it's all. It's there's different spectrums, and every tool that I could have, my brother could have latched onto, are tools that leaders and high performers or people that are struggling and still here with us and wanting to find a way out. The tools are universal. The techniques, the healing, it's all we're all this this one human experience going through it, and we need to create that connection instead of that disconnection of feeling alone.
0: Absolutely. That has been the hardest lesson for me over the past 3 years was how disconnected I was from myself. And if you're Ooh. disconnected from yourself, how can you connect with other people? And then the past 3 years really experiencing this podcast journey and learning from people that I didn't even know I was going to learn from and finding the through lines in like you said the techniques that other people are using that I've found have helped me to find myself so that I can be here for my kids in a way that I would not have been able to, um, you know, even the changes that have happened over the months and understanding that it's not just that people have gone through the same thing and have come out the other side, but it's that people really will stand there with you. And, the absolute like certainty that mental health and sobriety addiction you know your relationship with alcohol it's all so connected that you can't get through one of it without getting through the other otherwise you're just going to go from one thing to another such as alcohol to work to parent to work to you know so many other things and that is my personal story, where it was six years into not drinking and sobriety that I finally started to heal yes. and be there for other people. I thought I was there for other people, yeah. but I wasn't because I was always trying to fix and I wasn't there as a support. Mm. Um, so, spreading that message that, of that connection, of that community that you really can find. Um, if you do just a little bit of digging, like that is Mm -hmm. it's so needed and it's, um, it's the one, it's the one that's going to change, change our society for the, for the best. So, um, as we start wrapping this episode up, Jeff, is there something that you want people to really understand, um, in this episode with your message?
1: Well, I know it's easier said than done, but I went alcohol free four years ago. I never had a problem. Okay. But I made a decision after going to a conference that alcohol was not serving me and alcohol is literally a poison. And when I made that connection, I already knew it wasn't good for me. But when I started making those connections and realized it wasn't serving me and there was a lot of social constructs around alcohol, I made the commitment. It was one daily habit that I said, hey, I'm for 30 days, I'm going to do a 30-day challenge. I'm just not going to drink for 30 days. Now, again, I had it easier than most because I didn't have an issue. So it wasn't a hard thing for me. So everyone can say, well, Jeff, that wasn't hard for you, but... For anyone listening, I would encourage you to really start looking at the science and the data. Tap into what alcohol actually does to your brain and your body. Read about it. There's a book called This Naked Mind. It goes all into this idea that we have these unconscious beliefs about everything, including alcohol, and how we've been conditioned to growing up. It's it's perceived as fun. It's perceived as, hey, let's go have a good time. Uh, everything's connected. Let's go to the business party. Let's do a business deal and have some drinks. Want to meet for a cocktail? Everything is set up to drink poison. So if you can start to look at your your behaviors and then look at why you're doing these things, and you can get counsel, whether it's therapy or coaching and community around it. My one advice is cut the alcohol out. Like, let's like just stop drinking. Again, easier said than done, but like train, learn why, like learn the unconscious patterns, dig in, be willing to lean into it, surround yourself with healthy people. But yeah, if I would love to see a world where people would go alcohol free and just notice how their life changed changes and i realize there's that deeper layer underneath that alcohol is great because it actually does solve a problem it doesn't give us the solution the healthy solution but we are using it and drugs to solve a pain right so it's there for a purpose and now in this emerging world where there's more podcasts and talk about being alcohol free or being sober we need to we need to really look at our behaviors and what we're choosing to do. And I think that's a huge leverage point for performance and health is to lean into that.
0: Yeah. And so I don't know if you knew this, that was a heck of a plug. So in the yeah. next couple of weeks, I'm going to be a certified this naked mind, alcohol-free life coach. Awesome. Um, <laughs> and it's great. it really is, you know, it, it really is about helping people to explore their relationship that it, to me, if you don't want to go alcohol-free, but you just want to be healthier, okay, let's be healthier, um, especially as a society. But I, so also along with this, actually, uh, you're talking about business networking. <laughs> I, started a, I started a meetup group not too long ago around alcohol-free events because I needed friends and I didn't have any. And I met two friends through that where we started a business in February where we're creating alcohol-free events in a bigger way. One of our first events on May 11th is a business networking event from five to seven thirty, when people would normally be drinking with all alcohol-free beverages, whether it's beer, spiritless gin, mocktails, things like that. So we're out here doing it. And I agree with you completely that it does help us, uh, get through that so jeff if people want to let's say people really love uh your approach to life and want to get in touch with you what's the best way to do that
1: the best way to get in touch with me is if you want to kind of see what i'm up to you can go to jeffsalzenstein.com that's my performance coaching and um website but i always tell people listen if you really resonated with this message and you connect with it and you either want to connect with me further, or you know someone that may need to connect with me, you want a a business or a company or a group where I could come in and speak and teach my teach and speak into the balcony blueprint, uh, you can send me a text and you can put it in the show notes uh, 303-882-9028. I'm based in Denver, Colorado, where I grew up. And uh, like you, I want to connect with more like-minded folks that are alcohol-free, that are focused on performance and health doing the deeper work and knowing themselves and knowing others and connecting. So yeah, shoot me a text and I'd love to connect and obviously check out my website at jeffsalzenstein.com.
0: So all that'll be in the show notes, like you said, and um, this episode has been incredibly powerful from the mindset aspect, the emotional aspect, and then talking about being there for somebody. and. Your brother's story, app. Um, like I said, that is extremely powerful, and how you talk about it. it's incredible. So thank you, thank um, you.
1: Let's put let's put his uh, TEDx link in there too in the show notes.
0: Yes, I would absolutely love to do that. We yeah, are de- that. that's definitely going to happen, and I will be putting that on the social media stuff too. So um, check out Jeff uh, at his website, and you know, shoot him a text if you'd like to to meet up. Uh, this has been Untapped Keg podcast about sobriety and mental health, where we explore different perspectives of mental health and sobriety so that you could take something and use it in your own life. Uh, let's try to be better tomorrow than we were today, because at least we don't make it, we tried. Have a great week, everybody. I love you.